So now we're about three days before closing, when closing was supposed to be. Okay, so at this point, the seller says, nope, I no longer want to do that. You have to close by the 28th as for the contract, or I'm going to hold you in default. Now, at this point, between earnest money deposits, due diligence costs, legal fees, loan applications, we were probably somewhere around $250,000 into the deal. So as you can imagine, my first thought is, oh, crap, we're going to lose a quarter of a million dollars. It's not the mistake that matters. It's how you deal with it, what you learn from it, and how you apply that lesson to your life. Welcome to Multifamily Missteps, where your host, Jerome Myers, brings on apartment investors from around the country, big and small, to share with you the lessons they wish somebody would have told them. These short episodes are designed to expedite your journey to growing a profitable apartment portfolio without all the mistakes that others have made. We're super excited that you're here. Now, let's jump into the show. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Multifamily Missteps. I'm your host, Jerome, and I've got Charles Seaman in with me today. Charles, we're in the same state, man. How are things in Carolina? Good, Jerome. It's, it's, it's good to be on with a fellow North Carolinian. Well, I think you're a transplant. I don't know if you can claim North Carolina as home now. Come on. You I hear the I, accent. I would agree with you. The accent does give it away. I'm originally by way of Brooklyn, New York, and I've been down here about two and a half years now. Oh, man. Well, I'm glad you saw the light and came on down south and got some of this Southern hospitality. So, you know, the listeners, they, they may have seen you on some of the conferences. They may have seen you on LinkedIn. It, it, they may have. But if they haven't, who is Charles and how do you get into multifamily investing? Sure. So originally, as, as I said, from Brooklyn, New York, and I was there for the, the bulk of my life uh, living and working in Brooklyn and Manhattan. And I was fortunate to probably take a, a different approach into multifamily than many people do. And the way it was a little bit different was that when I was 20 years old, I started working for a guy who was a successful commercial real estate investor in New York City. And at that time, it wasn't so much because I had the intention of becoming a commercial real estate investor. It was because I was 20 years old and I needed a job. And at that time, it worked out that I was hired by this gentleman who owns several different properties and different businesses. And my role eventually expanded to include managing all of his different properties and businesses. So after being involved for a number of years, I always knew that I gravitated more to the real estate side than the other ones. And for a few reasons, you know, I like the stability with real estate. I like the consistency. And you know, to be honest, real estate's a little bit easier than some other businesses out there. There's a lot more moving parts when you have full-time staff and when you have different components to it, where real estate's rather simple. And it involves some of the things that I'm really good at, which are dealing with people and negotiating and just building relationships. So those are all things that I enjoy and I take pride in. So my natural uh, tendency was to gravitate to that. So fast forward a little bit, you know, I started that job in 2005, around 2014 and 15, I dabbled into single family and uh, not so much because I wanted to be in single family, but I knew that I didn't have the budget to go out there and do commercial deals myself. So as I started dabbling in single family and wholesaling, what I realized were two things. One, I wasn't very good at it. And it's not to say that I couldn't have learned the skills I needed to, but I already had a skill set that was geared for commercial real estate. And secondly, you know, quite frankly, I didn't enjoy it as much. So I, I quickly fell back from that. And then in 2016, for the first time, I, I discovered syndication. 
And as I started looking into that more, I said, okay, this, this works really well. It allows me to be involved in the deals I want to be involved in. It allows me to use the skill set I already have. And it allows me to use other people's money to get them funded because I didn't have the financial wherewithal to go out and buy five and 10 and $20 million properties by myself. So that's my story of how I got started and kind of led me to where I am now. Beautiful, beautiful. And so you've done a few transactions over the course of your career, right? Right. So on the they all went. Side, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say they all went perfectly just as planned, right? You know what? I'd love to say that's the case. Uh, we have had some that we've been fortunate to run a lot smoother than others, but there's always some learning experiences along the way. So do you have any? I feel like COVID threw a lot of people for a loop. COVID definitely did. COVID actually threw us for a loop probably with two different ones, but there's one specific one I, I think would be a good focal point for today. And that was with a, a 64 unit property that we purchased. We initially went on the contract in late October, 2020, and we ultimately wound up closing it in February of 2021. So with any contract, one of the things that I would always advise anybody to do, regardless of how fast you believe that you'll be able to close a deal is to make sure you have an extension built into the contract. And the extension basically gives you extra time to close. Sometimes there's a fee associated with that extension. And, and sometimes if you, re- if you negotiate it really well, you may be able to get it for no fee. But in either scenario, it's always cheaper and easier to have that extension built into the contract up front than to go back and negotiate when you really need it at the 11th hour. So in this case, we had an extension built into it. We exercised the extension and used it. But the problem is, uh, as we were getting closer to closing about a week and a half before, we were applying for an agency loan and being in communication with our lender, I realized, okay, we're not going to be able to close when we need to. So I think it it was probably somewhere around like January 15th. And with our contract, we had to close by January 28th. So I said, okay, let me reach out to the broker, let them know we're probably going to need some extra time. You know, what can we do? to and you know to work this out with the seller so we get an additional extension. Can we give them some additional money to the purchase price? Whatever it might be. So okay. You know, initially the seller seemed receptive to it when the broker reached out to him. He told us he wanted an additional fifty thousand dollars, but that the fifty thousand dollars would be applied to the purchase price, you know, uh, and not on top of it. So to me that sounded okay because I was fine with that. I went back and I discussed it with our team and there was a little bit of hesitation on our team because I think some of the other partners were newer and may not have fully understood what it what it entailed. So because of that, it probably took us longer than it should have to, to give the seller a yes or no answer. So by the time I went back to him and said, yes, we'd like to take that, the seller had changed his mind. And, and now keep in mind, this is January 25th, so we lost some time in between. So now we're about three days before closing, when closing was supposed to be. Okay, so at this point, the seller says, nope. I no longer want to do that. You have to close by the 28th as for the contract, or I'm going to hold you in default. Now, at this point, between earnest money deposits, due diligence costs, legal fees, loan applications, we were probably somewhere around $250,000 into the deal. So as you can imagine, my first thought is, oh, crap, we're going to lose a quarter of a million dollars <laughs> because it seemed pretty bleak. And, and very unlikely that we'd be able to actually close by the 20th. So at that point, I said, okay, well, what options do we have? I went to the broker because he had a good relationship with the seller. And I asked him, you know, what can we do 
to make it worth his while. So that way we get the extension we need and we can close the transaction. And, you know, the broker told me, he said, you know, I spoke with the seller a few times. And he really seems set that it's either going to close by the 28th or you're going to be in default. So at that point, uh, as you can imagine, we're scrambling. Myself and some of the other partners were calling the lender and saying, listen, guys, what can we do? You know, we have to speed the process up. You know, what can we do to close in the next three days? And at this point, when, you, when you're in scramble mode, you start pulling out all the stops. So we said, okay, let's start thinking of some things that might be out of the box. We reached out to a hard money lender we knew, which wasn't really our first choice, especially on a, a deal this size. But we, we said, okay, we need somebody that's going to have 5 or $6 million liquid that can give us money very quickly. And there's only so many people we know with that type of money that will do that. So we reached out to him. We said, listen, what can, what can, what can you do for us here? And transparently he told me right away, he said, listen, I'm glad to help you, but I want you to know the rate's probably going to be a lot higher than anything you'd like to see. <laughs> I said, okay, well, at this point we're, we're faced with a higher rate or potentially losing a quarter of a million dollars. So we, we, we went down that route. We discussed it with the hard money lender and without even really having time to review the deal solely on relationship and, and, and our reputation, he was willing to give us 70% of the, the purchase price, which to be honest, was very generous on 24 hours notice. The only challenge was we really needed 80% because that's what we were banking on. So we still would have had a shortfall of that additional 10%. So that didn't wind up being a good fit. So, okay, at this point, I figured what options do we have left? You know, this deal involved the broker. So the correspondence goes through the broker. I figured, you know what? Let me see if I can try reaching out to the seller directly, speaking with him and catching his attention. So I'm over in Charlotte, North Carolina. I, I live in Charlotte. This particular property is in Charlotte. And the seller has an office in Charlotte because he has another business that he operates and that he, he, he works out of. So I figured, okay, let me, let me see if I can stop by the office and try and make a good impression and meet him in person, maybe just reason, beg, borrow, plead, whatever it might be to try and get extra time. And I, I stop by the office, go to the receptionist, and they tell me, unfortunately, nope, he, he's out of the office for the rest of the days at meetings. So I say, okay, that's struck out. Now, at this point, this is January 27th. We had a close by the 28th. So we're within one day of the required closing by the contract. Okay. So now I'm thinking to myself, well, so far we're striking out on all fronts. I can't seem to get his attention. I went to his office to try and meet him in person. That didn't work. So I said, okay, what other options do we have left? And I decided to make a, a last-ditch Hail Mary effort. And I sent him an email directly, which I, I copied the broker on, but I went straight to him. And I said, listen, we, we want to get this deal done. We didn't come this far to the full that short. <laughs> and and we, we want to work with you. We understand, you know, your position, but we want you to understand ours as well. And we want to work in good faith to get this done together. So I threw out five different options in the email that I thought could potentially entice him. One of which was the additional $50,000 credited to the purchase price, which I was pretty sure he wasn't going to go for that being he'd already backed out on that one. But I said, let's, let's try just in case. I threw out an additional 50000 on top of the purchase price to see if we could get the time because I said, well, at this point, we may as well try whatever we need to, even if it's $50,000, it's better than losing a quarter of a million that's non-refundable at this point. So let's try that. The seller was very big on taking care of his staff at the property. 
He had a very good relationship with them. So we, we threw out a, you know, basically a, a severance package of, you know, $200,000 that we'll pay out to the staff as you want. And, and we, we, we even included one that had part of our percentage in the general partnership and said, listen, we'll leave you in the deal as a partner. You get part of our percentage and, and leave you in there. So my expectation or my hope was that he would see the email. It would catch his attention and first get a reply, which it did, and that he would give us an indication that maybe one or two of those options were what he was favoring. So the good news is I caught his attention and I did get a reply. To my surprise, he wanted some combination of all five of the options that I offered, which I wasn't really expecting to do that. I said, well, that I said, I got the reply. That was good. But I said, boy, this may wind up being a lot more costly than I thought. <laughs> so. We wound up getting him to agree uh, to take an additional fifty thousand toward the purchase price, an additional fifty thousand on top of the purchase price, just as an extension fee, and part of our part of our ownership. So I said, okay, we we, we gave away a lot more than I would have liked. Uh, the good news is it still got the deal done; it got it across the finish line. But it was a learning lesson, and, and here was the lesson that we had. So I think part of the problem with our earlier transactions is that we would wait until we were about halfway through our due diligence period to submit the loan application and to start our offering docs. And the reason we did that is because once you lay out that money, you don't get it back. So we wanted to be confident that we were going to move forward with the transaction before we started laying out you know, $20,000, $30,000 in loan application and legal fees. So what we realized going forward is that, okay, you know what? This is just the cost of doing business. And no, we don't want to just lose twenty or thirty thousand dollars on legal fees and loan applications, but that has to be an expense we're willing to accept because that's the cost of doing business in this space. So the lesson learned is that we had to be willing to accept that and to start the loan application and to start the offering docs as soon as the PSA got signed. So that way something like this never happened again. And, and needless to say, those last two days before we worked out that agreement were probably the most two stressful days of my professional life. I generally tend to like stress. Like there are people who work well with with chaos, and that that describes me pretty well. But I have to admit, these probably pushed my threshold a little further than I would have liked. So I'd rather not repeat than I'm, and I'm glad to have learned a bit from them. A lot of people want to be profitable multifamily operators, but lack the knowledge, deal flow, experience, and capital to be successful. They often try to overcome these challenges out of order, slowing or eliminating their ability to get the next deal done. We have developed a framework that allows them to gain the knowledge they need to find profitable deals. When they use our system, they create time and location freedom, as well as the generational wealth they desire for their family. The Multifamily Kickstart program has proven to be the fastest way to establish credibility and build a profitable apartment portfolio. Hop over to JeromeMyers.co to find out more information. Wow. So, you know, trying to be wise on when you spend money in a deal is, I think, really important because your pursuit costs can put you out of business if you're not careful in the beginning. Right. And you're saying, hey, you know, we know pretty early on whether or not the deal is going to close. And that's based on our physical due diligence and our financial reviews. And so we able to accelerate it and get those offering documents started 15 days in versus 30 or 45? 
so so we were starting them about 15 days in previously, but even that was too long. And that was really what caused us the the issue because with the agency loan, it took you know almost 60 days to close. And being we started at 15 days in of a 30-day due diligence period and then 30, day, 30 days more to close, it put us in a bad spot as we came to the closing date. So we realized that we have to start them as soon as the contract is signed. And I know that other buyers do that. We were always reluctant to because we just, as you said, we didn't want to spend money foolishly and say, okay, we found something during due diligence. We're not going to move forward. But now we've changed our, our process and our mentality to say, okay, you know what? We have to do that because if we don't, we're just not going to be competitive and we're not going to be able to, to close these deals in the time frame that we need to. Now, the downside to it is if you find something during due diligence, that's a major red flag, then you may wind up spending that money and not getting it back. And so how long is your due diligence period in your contract? We typically are for a 30-day period. So with this particular deal, it was 30 days. And we waited until about halfway through that period before we submitted the loan application and started the offering docs. And so you're doing the 30 and 30, 30 for due diligence, 30 for financing? Right. Yeah, that makes it tough, especially yeah. if the agencies are backed up. Right. And we also had a 30-day extension in this one, which we used, but and that was for an additional 50000 toward the, the purchase price. But it wound up being a little bit backlog just because with the timing of the deal at the end of the year and through the holiday season, I think everything was slow. And especially at the end of 2020 and early 2021, third-party reports were still taking a while. They're still taking a while now, but they were taking even longer then because there were so many access restrictions in different areas with COVID. Yeah, that seller is pretty hard on you guys. Most sellers are a little more accommodating. I, that's he, that was tough. He was very hard on us, but 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 it, it you know what I've always found in life is that the hardest lessons are the best teaching points. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you don't learn anything when something goes smooth. So with something like that, it'll stick out in my head, and I'll say, okay, let me make sure never to do that again. <laughs> yeah. So I want to go back to one more thing, just make sure I'm clear on it. So go your ahead. extension period was not guaranteed the 30 day. So, so the 30 days was, and we had used that, but okay. just with the delay of the holiday season and the third party reports and us starting things, you know, probably midway through the due diligence period versus right at the beginning that caused a delay that led to us not being able to hit that closing. Now we wound up closing one week after what the, the last day of that extension period would have been. But we figured, okay, let's just try and negotiate that additional extension. And that little extension after, of course, is a lot of money. <laughs> it, it did. So one thing that I've seen people who are clever do is say business days instead of calendar days. Right. To get that, more time. That can go a long way. And depending on the seller that you're dealing with, you know, that, that can often give you an advantage without people realizing it's, it's an advantage. However, the, the seller we were dealing with was pretty sharp and he was... He was an accountant by trade, so he naturally looked over everything pretty meticulously. And there was no such case with that. <laughs> I love it, Charles. This was a great one. We we haven't talked about sellers being hard-nosed with us on this podcast yet. So this this is a great one for the listeners. Last question, man. What what words of wisdom do you have for our listeners? Make as many mistakes as you can. So make I'm I'm gonna use advice that may be a little bit unconventional, but Make mistakes. That's how you learn. Don't be afraid to make mistakes. Uh, obviously, if you're using somebody else's money, be smart about it so that way you're not tossing their money away. But learn from your mistakes. 
figure out where you need to adjust course, and then keep making new mistakes so that way you keep growing. Wow, that's good. I haven't heard that one before. I I don't like <laughs> making mistakes, <laughs> which is why I try to learn from everybody else's. And but yeah, I mean, if you're not making mistakes, you're probably not playing a big enough game, right? That that's the only way that you actually learn and grow. So that that's wonderful, man. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Jerome, thanks for having me. Awesome. To the listeners, the pack's with you. We'll talk soon. You made it all the way to the end, so that means you love this episode of Multifamily Missteps. I need a favor from you. The only way this show grows is if more people know about it. So do me a favor. Take a screenshot and post it on your favorite social media platform and tag me in it. Who knows? We may have you as the next guest. I look forward to sharing the episode with you next week.